welcome to the 50th episode of the In All Things podcast, a podcast where we host conversations about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with a living legend, historian Mark Knoll. Dr. Knoll is best known for his work in American church history, especially the scandal of the evangelical mind. In this conversation, we talk about a new book about C.S. Lewis's reception in America, using it as a lens for understanding American culture then and now. Whether you love Lewis or not, I hope you will find it illuminating. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Recently, I was with a group of senior theology students, and I asked them to list some of the people who had most influenced their thinking. I was gratified to hear them mention parents and professors, but the name that came up most frequently among these students is probably no surprise. C.S. Lewis. In fact, the one student who didn't mention Lewis refused to mention him on principle, because everyone else expected it. These students came from a variety of backgrounds. Reformed, Wesleyan, Pentecostal, Evangelical Free, and yet they were united in their appreciation of Lewis. It reminded me of a story told by Peter Kreeft about an ecumenical conference he attended with representatives from Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant traditions. At the concluding session, he writes, they found that they were more united than divided because they all believed and loved and defended the whole canon of Scripture, the ecumenical councils and creeds and the collected works of C.S. Lewis. Lewis's popular writings have made him into something of a contemporary saint, but has this always been the case? This was a research question for Dr. Mark Knoll, professor of history emeritus at Wheaton College and the University of Notre Dame. Knoll was interested in learning how Lewis was received in the United States before he became a megastar, and before the ecumenical atmosphere of the late 20th century. The result of his investigation is a new book, C.S. Lewis in America, a book that sheds light not just on Lewis's broad appeal, but also on the changing shape of American religious life. In this interview, I asked Noel what America's love for Lewis means, whether it might be problematic, and whether we should look for another Lewis in our own day. I also asked him to place Lewis's popularity in context with the argument that Knoll has also made about the scandal of the evangelical mind. And given the state of things, what makes him worry and where does he find hope? It was truly an honor to get to interview Dr. Knoll, and I'm glad to share this interview with you. Well, I'm joined now by a guest, Dr. Mark Knoll, who is the Emeritus Professor of History at Wheaton College and at the University of Notre Dame. He's authored numerous books, and he was named by Time magazine as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. His latest book, though, is about a well-loved figure who made the cover of Time magazine back in 1947, and that person is C.S. Lewis. The book is called C.S. Lewis in America, and we are delighted to be talking with its author, Dr. Mark Knoll. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's my privilege. Thank you for having me. 
So when I was starting to think about doing a PhD just over a decade ago, I remember saying to someone, well, I would try to do something on C.S. Lewis if I thought there was anything left to be done. And so here you found something. You've made a new contribution to scholarship on Lewis. And so I'm wondering if you could just tell us the story of the idea for this book, how it came to be about, and what were some of the biggest surprises that you experienced in the course of the research? Sure. D during my uh, years at Wheaton College, I enjoyed uh, many conversations with people at Wheaton's Wade Center, which is a, a study center for Lewis and, and people who were influential for him, Lyle Dorset, Chris Mitchell, Marjorie Mead, and, and others. In 2013, Chris Mitchell, who was then the uh, director, solicited uh, papers to mark the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death. And during my time at Wheaton, I, I joined the admiration for Lewis. I mean, who, who uh, from the Christian world doesn't? But I'd of, often thought that. Uh, admiration for Lewis could easily uh, move out so that you could consider his contexts and learn interesting things from those uh, contexts. Uh, at the time, my wife Maggie was, uh, was employed by the University of Notre Dame as my research assistant, so she did a lot of work on uh, finding out what America was like and how America responded to Lewis in the period before uh, he became super famous with the Narnia tales and uh, mere Christianity. And then a few years later, uh, after retiring to Notre Dame and moving back to Wheaton, I was asked to give the Hanson Lectures, which is a series that the Wade Center sponsors so that Wheaton people can be introduced to uh, Lewis and, and company. And uh, Maggie had done so much research, I had just tons and tons of stuff. So it was a pretty easy matter to go on and do a, a three lecture series and then produce the chapters of this book. Surprises came, I suppose, primarily in how uh, widespread appreciation for Lewis was. So it was a time when uh, the major reviewing publications in the United States, New York Times, New York Herald Review, Saturday Review of Literature, did review uh, Lewis, and uh, usually very favorably. I, I had known that there was a Catholic interest in Lewis, but not really that it, it was so well-developed and so deep. And I knew that evangelicals and post-fundamentalists were a little bit late in getting on the Lewis bandwagon, but it turned out that they were really quite late. And try, trying to understand the reasons for that was a, a major find of the, of the project. Yeah, you mentioned that you were writing about this particular time period, 1935 to 1947. This, as you mentioned, is before the Narnia books, before he became super popular. So why did you choose those years in particular? And which of Lewis's writings are we talking about here? So Americans had access to 17 books by Lewis. Uh, the first one to be reviewed in America was The Pilgrim's Regress, December of 1935 in the New York Times. And then, as you mentioned earlier, he appeared on the cover of Time magazine in September of 1947. This was a manageable group of, of uh, responses. And it also covered the years of, of real social and cultural economic and eventually military conflict from the Great Depression through World War II and on to the era of the, the Cold War. So it seemed like a, a good chunk of Lewis with, with a starting point and, and a finishing point. The works uh, included several academic works, books not published uh, directly in the United States, but available for, to Americans because they were brought out by Oxford University Press. And then there were the uh, imaginative works, the, the Space Trilogy, often, I guess, Lewis authorities now call it the Ransom Trilogy. The phenomenal popularity of the Screwtape Letters was what made Lewis known uh, in America. 
and led to Macmillan, his American publisher, bringing out a number of works uh, that Lewis had already published in, in England, and then all of his works that he, he published thereafter. So it was a nice set. Maggie had actually gone on to do more, look at more reviews from the late 40s, early 50s, but there, there came to be so many, it would have really required something like a lifetime's work to uh, <laughs> manage all those uh, reviews and responses. Well, there's a project for someone else, hopefully, to do to continue what you started in this book. Uh, but even if people aren't fans of Lewis, you use Lewis's reception as a sort of lens to make sense of what's going on in American religion and culture uh, during the time. Uh, and you develop this in terms of three primary groups. Uh, the three groups are the Roman Catholics, uh, the mainstream press and the academy, and then Protestants, which includes evangelicals. And I'm going to ask you a question about each of those groups. But before I do, what are some of the most important things for us to know about the state of American culture, American religious culture, at the time when Lewis's books began to break onto the scene in the United States? Well, clearly, uh, by the 1940s, uh, the United States is not a, a predominantly Protestant culture, and yet it is still, there's a kind of what, what we might call a, a, a Christian afterglow that uh, made it possible for the major reviewing publications to, to uh, routinely look at works that, were, that came out of distinct and, and individual Christian uh, communities. And then also, in this time period, uh, there, there certainly was in the West a sense that the allies, the, the nations of Western Europe and the United States and Canada had to stand up against Hitler, but thin evocations of democracy, thin evocations of, of, of freedom weren't enough. A, a, a book I mentioned in, in the, this, this study was Alan Jacobs' fine analysis entitled Year of Our Lord 1943. He explored how uh, five or six Christian thinkers, including Lewis, uh, Simone Weil, uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, and several others, tried to present a Christian message showing the virtues of historic Christian civilization as a proper basis for a civilization that would not be Nazi and would oppose the, uh, the, the communist regime in China. Now, interestingly enough, there is, I, I want to say almost no, that's probably an exaggeration a little bit, but there's al almost no political commentary by Lewis. There are a few sections in, in the Screw Tape Letters right. where he re refers to things happening in World War II but it was obvious that uh, he got a hearing in part by people who might not otherwise have listened to a Christian voice, but, mm -hmm. the, but the tumults of the time had shaken them up enough that there was, there was this opening that, that uh, he could be heard. Yeah, it's fascinating. You mentioned earlier that you were surprised by the Roman Catholic adoption or enthusiasm for Lewis. Uh, in some ways, they were the earliest adopters. There's even this place where you note that a Protestant reviewer mistook Lewis for being a British Catholic. Right. And Lewis writes back and says, I was born in Belfast. I'm a Protestant. There's also this great part about how Thomas Merton wrote a review of Lewis. Uh, it's surprising to me that there's all of this Catholic enthusiasm because this was before the reforms of Vatican II, which are about 20 years later. Uh, and I'm wondering what accounts for the appeal of Lewis to Roman Catholics in particular? And does it lead us to anticipate something of the spirit of more ecumenical understanding that we're going to see in the United States in years to come. 
Yes, I, I, th- I think it does. I mean, it is still um, a decade and a half or two decades or more before the Second Vatican Council. But it's obvious that quite a few Catholic reviewers were just delighted to find somebody who presented mere Christianity, that is, basic Christianity without a denominational slant, um, and, and who did it successfully in, in the public. So you can almost see a kind of anticipation of what would come later in the 60s and 70s with the willingness of Catholics to take advantage of other, other Christian groups. There was also a set of Catholic uh, reviewers unusual in their uh, ability to work with Greek and Roman sources, in their knowledge of classical English literature, and who were not in, coincidentally enthusiasts for G.K. Chesterton. So there are uh, some uh, two lay Catholics who teach at uh, Jesuit colleges, Marquette and, and Canisius in, in Buffalo, and, and two or three priests, Jesuits, who are really excited about Lewis because he brings contemporary Christian proclamation in the garb of, of, of real learning, but then also learning that was uh, accessible. So several of them mentioned, well, this, this is the most important public Christian voice since G.K. Chesterton passed away. It's also the case, I think, that, that uh, the, the way in which Lewis began to construct his apologetic, beginning with uh, the innate human sense of right and wrong. And th- these would be features of, of his, uh, the broadcast talks that were published as pamphlets. These pamphlets would eventually, in 1952, be pulled together as, as mere Christianity. And, and there were themes that, that showed up in, in some of his, his later Christian or at least moral uh, proclamation. And Lewis, very frankly, begins with what he considers uh, innate, universal belief in moral absolutes. Parallel, the Catholic natural theology was, mm-hmm. was jumped on by a number, particularly of the, uh, the clerical uh, reviewers, mm-hmm. who, who weren't entirely pleased because they, several of them said, well, this is wonderful stuff, but Lewis never refers to the church, and the church is obviously very, very important right. to us. Yeah. It was actually a, a, a theme of the one female reviewer of uh, several of Lewis's works, Anne Fremantle, uh, from Britain, but a Catholic convert when she arrived in, in the United States. She too was enthusiastic about Lewis, but he says he just he doesn't emphasize the, the church enough. But those those three things, I think, the fact that he, that he was a a, a pan Christian uh, apologist, that that he uh, was really learned, and yet could use that learning for a popular works, and that that he began his formal apologetics with this move. Talking about universal human values, those those things I think had a great appeal for Catholics, and in fact re- remain uh, of interest to Catholics to this day. I think at uh, Notre Dame in my decade there, I noticed that there were several courses, usually in the theology department, although maybe maybe much or twice elsewhere, where people read a lot of C.S. Lewis, and certainly those things that had uh, been visible in the 1930s and 40s continued to be of interest to Catholics right to the present. Yeah, it seems like Lewis has always had this unique crossover appeal. Uh, he continues to be popular with with Mormons, for example. But a second group that you explore with respect to Lewis's reception is the Secular Academy and then the mainstream press. He was reviewed by many major outlets. And so what do we learn uh, from his reception among secular writers? What did they think about him? Uh, what was the response of the mainstream press to the writings of Lewis? 
Well, until the screw tape letters are published in the United States in early 1943, most of the, the uh, general or secular or mainstream press interest in Lewis came from academics. He had published a book on uh, Paradise Lost. He published a, a major study on medieval and early modern romances. And these were uh, reviewed quite favorably, not, 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 ex- not in an excited way as would come with the screw tape letters and, and Paraland and other works, but really quite positive. And then with the screw tape letters, that, that book was reviewed everywhere. Well, not everywhere, obviously, but probably we could find, we found 25 or so newspaper reviews and, and then constant points of, of reference. Charles Brady, who did the terrific uh, uh, two-part uh, Catholic review of Lewis, which was far and away the most comprehensive thing that, that appeared in the U.S. in this period, begins his review by saying, you've all heard about the screw tape letters, but let me tell you, this guy's got a lot more than just the uh, uh, screw tape letters. So the, the mainstream press, again, the New York Times, New York Herald Tribune, Saturday Review of Literature, had extensive articles on Lewis. In fact, Lewis appears on the cover of an American periodical, the Saturday Review, in 1943 or four. so several years before he appears on the cover of Time. Beginning in the mid-40s, uh, he's reviewed in Time magazine, which has a, a universal circulation, probably beyond doubt, of the one uh, American periodical that had the greatest influence in, in the period. There were a few negative reviews, uh, actually less than probably a handful. The most uh, negative happened to come from Alistair Cook, who would later become famous as the host of the PBS uh, Masterpiece, yeah, Theater. Masterpiece Theater. He had come out of a, a pretty tight Christian background and had lost the Christian faith when he was at an undergraduate in, in uh, England, had come to America, and, and he, he considered Lewis just a mountebank, a, a kind of fraud mm-hmm. who was whipping up enthusiasm during uh, the wartime. But, but yeah. that was very, very unusual. There were some, uh, some serious philosophical uh, responses, particularly by the time we get to miracles and uh, Lewis's the apologetics in the, in the pamphlets that became uh, mere Christianity. These, even where philosophers differ, uh, Charles Hartshorn, for example, uh, who famous process uh, philosopher, process theologian, wrote a critical review, but it was also appreciative. You could see him wrestling with, with Lewis's view. So both in the popular press, uh, where there was next to universal approval, and then in uh, more academic writing, people just appreciated the combination of what Lewis brought. So he was a terrifically clear writer. He was imaginative. He was deeply learned. He made his points in such a way that even if you disagreed with him, you had to pay attention. So that, that was, to me, I knew that he was well-received, but to see how wide and deep that, that reception was. W.H. Auden, the, the poet who would win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature, 19... 44, 1945, reviewed The Great Divorce favorably in the uh, Saturday Review of Literature and also went on to review. He said, if you like Lewis, you should read his friend, Charles Williams. And, and uh, he later would review also favorably the uh, volume of the, the Lord of the Rings from Tolkien. So Lewis was being read by interesting people and people who are known for, for their own literary achievements. I want to ask you about the Protestants in just a second, but before I do, I'm I'm wondering how much of Lewis's success, uh, well, obviously he's a gifted writer, and so at some level that wins him a hearing just because of his excellence right. and his craft. But I'm wondering how much of it, though, is right person at the right time. 
I guess another way of asking this is, do you think that we are culturally past the point where a Christian writer or scholar like Lewis, who's working today, could be taken as seriously uh, and as universally as he was? Or are we as a culture too secularized, too fragmented, too polarized? Is it realistic to look for another Lewis or somebody to make the sort of impact that he did? That's a, a really good question um, that, of course, it's impossible to answer because there, there just isn't an, another Lewis, but it's still, it's still worth thinking about. Uh, my own sense is that the difference today may not be so much in the pluralization, the secularization of the culture, which, of course, is very real, but in the multiplication of media uh, that people have available to themselves to, to access cultural information about uh, everything. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's kind of strange in my imagination to think that there'd be someone who would be popular on TikTok <laughs> and uh, the Atlantic and yeah. uh, sort of uh, philosophical journals hmm. just because those worlds have become more more uh, separate. And Lewis in his own day w- was certainly criticized and in some ways ignored by his Oxford colleagues but they because they thought he was prostituting his gifts before the public at large. Hmm. And that kind of uh, uh, attitude has, has continued. You can imagine, I think, if there would be a uh, contemporary person who could combine, say, the virtues of what, Marilyn Robinson, uh, Tim Keller, Alan Jacobs, and then your favorite fantasy writer, maybe such a person could, could have a, 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 a widespread impact. Although I'd, uh, because of the, the media, I, just, I, I, don't, I don't think it would be quite the same. Well, let me ask you then about this group of which we are a part, Protestants, and maybe this is a question that you'll only get asked on this particular podcast because this podcast is rooted in the Kuyperian tradition. And so many of our listeners may be interested in learning if there's anything that you found about Lewis's reception among the Dutch Reformed. Uh, you do have comments uh, from Reformed thinkers like Cornelius Van Til and the Westminster crowd. Any sense of the Reformed response uh, to Lewis, anything you found about Lewis' reception among Kuyperians? I wasn't aware of anything coming out of Calvin. Of course, Dort's not founded at that period. Uh, there is a Canadian um, interest in Lewis, but it tends to be amongst uh, people who are reading Church of England and British uh, uh, periodicals. The response you mentioned from conservative Presbyterians, mostly associated with Westminster uh, Seminary in in, uh, Philadelphia, is actually really interesting because there were several lengthy reviews in the the Westminster Theological Journal that that were actually almost unique in the the more conservative Protestant world. uh, Eventually, publications like Moody Monthly and the the Journal of the National Association of Evangelicals have really short one or two paragraph reviews of Lewis's works, they would often say, oh, it's a wonderful, bright, challenging writer, but he's got these problems, and they right, would right. A, a few things. But the Westminster reviewers were unusual. Several of the reviews, uh, not so much by Van Til, who just didn't like Lewis at all for a reason <laughs> I'll, I'll mention, but, but there were younger people, Edmund Clowney um, and other younger people associated with Westminster who were obviously excited about reading Lewis. They, they said in reviews, this, this person brings a breath of fresh air to the public presentation of Christian faith. They appreciate, they're actually a, a more learned group than, than even any of the, the mainstream Protestants. Uh, they appreciate his, his ability to draw on the, the Paradise Lost, 
medieval literature, Greek and Roman literature is, is good understanding of, of the Bible. So the, the reviews will go on for a page or two of just joyous celebration. And then they'll come up, but. But, yeah. And it's interesting for the American situation that the but finds these conservative Presbyterians nervous about what the Catholics especially appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Lewis began his apologetics with a sense of what all people can understand intuitively as a doorway to lead them. So, so in Kuyperian terms, he's emphasizing common grace. Common grace, yeah. And not so much the antithesis. Mm-hmm. Van Til, who is sort of Mr. Antithesis, <laughs> uh, doesn't like Lewis because in his uh, presuppositional approach to uh, apologetics, he just doesn't see any way forward for a legitimate Christian population proclamation that does not begin with trust in the scriptures right. and a belief in, in God. So yeah. you, you have this really interesting uh, focus by both several Catholic authors and some of these conservative Presbyterians on Lewis's main apologetical strategy. The Catholics love it. The Presbyterians, and I'm, I'm assuming if there were people at Calvin and, and in the CRC and RCA reading, reading Lewis, they might, they might respond the same way. But that actually would be a wonderful uh, kind of project for people at Dort or, or Calvin or, or up at Redeemer in Canada to see what, what's in the college archives that yeah. might tell us about early reception of, of CSO. Do they have these kind of objections that the like Van Til, who was sent from the CRC to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, do they have that kind of uh, nervousness about how Lewis approaches the apologetic task? Well, I'm sure somebody from those institutions is listening to this podcast. And if they are, you've been given now some possible research projects to pursue as a result of this interview. (laughs) Um, I want to ask you, you noted already that evangelicals, when you were studying them, you were surprised. You uh, knew that they were slower to appreciate Lewis, but didn't know how slow. Why is this the case? Why were they slower? What were their reservations? And what accounts for the massive shift to where now Lewis is regarded almost as an evangelical saint? Well, I think the, the fundamentalist heritage uh, made it difficult for people like Carl Henry, who certainly wanted to do something more uh, culture-embracing, uh, more positive than the fundamentalist. But the fundamentalist heritage had... had uh, drawn attention to details of Christian doctrine. So did somebody believe in the, the, the second coming of Christ described in a certain way? Did, did somebody uh, uh, observe the, the kind of pietistic living standard? A wonderful story that has, I think, been pretty well uh, verified. Bob Jones, I think, Jr., visits C.S. Lewis a little bit later than the period I cover in my book. He comes back to the United States and he says, you know, that man smokes. And that man drinks, but I do believe he is a Christian. <laughs> so there was a, there was a, hey, you had to get over huh. an understanding of Christian, an instinct of Christian faith where you had to get every detail right. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, the, the uh, evangelicals who were the first outside of uh, the conservative Presbyterians to latch on to uh, Lewis were from the university network. So, sometimes it was connection directly to uh IBCF in, in Britain, his magazine, uh, the magazine of, of University of the United States, actually included an excerpt from Lewis, I think in 1945 or 1946, and there were favorable articles uh, much earlier than, than elsewhere. By the time of the Narnia tales, there are any number of, of uh, people 
evangelicals, white evangelicals, mostly in the North, who've joined Carl Henry and want to have, want, want to keep a grasp of Christian fundamentals, but want to do it in a more culture-embracing way. Uh, the Wade Center at Wheaton was founded by uh, English professor Clyde Kilby, who ran across Lewis, one of Lewis's books, I think in the late 1940s. And he was just ecstatic because he was trained in literature. He, there were not very many examples of, of, of straightforward Christian authors that he was reading and studying. And, and he became a one-man enthusiasm uh, a proponent of Lewis's work. Eventually, he would write to Lewis and, and meet him. And then after Lewis died, tried to, tried to uh, secure Lewis papers and things for, for Wheaton. And there were, there were quite a few individuals like that. Uh, one of the archivists at Wheaton put, put me on to a letter from Elizabeth Howard, who had become well-known as Elizabeth Elliot, huh. who in 1943, 1944, is writing to her parents. And her father is the, is the editor of Sunday School Times, a, a mass circulation kind of quasi-fundamentalist, quasi-evangelical work. And she's, she's telling them, you know, I'm reading this book about these devils talking about uh, Brits, and that's really good. You should read it. And then a little bit later, I'm reading this, this account of, of uh, how all did not happen in, in, in Paralandra. So there's a younger audience in evangelicals who, who just are ripe for somebody who is affirming basic Christianity, not worrying about the details that so traumatized people in the fundamentalist era, but we're willing to uh, express positive Christian values and, and in a lively, again, lively, creative, persuasive telling. And uh, once, once that ball began to roll down the hill, it, gave, it got the momentum uh, very fast. I should notice that, uh, that in the mid-40s and late-40s, the, the leading Protestant Americans promoting C.S. Lewis were mainline Protestants. Chad Walsh, an Episcopalian teacher of English at Beloit College in Wisconsin, published in 1946, I think it was, an article in Atlantic, C.S. Lewis, Apostle to the Skeptics. And then just a couple years later, he expanded that into uh, probably the best book that appeared on Lewis in the 1940s, although even, even Walsh was not as thorough in understanding of Lewis's academic side as some of the Catholic authors like, like Charles Brady. I wonder if we could bring it up to the present and think about Lewis uh, in the present. Certainly, Lewis remains well-loved among evangelical Christians, in part because of what you described, the way he holds together mind and heart and imagination. I've noticed, though, among Christian academics that sometimes there is this response of them rolling their eyes when Lewis is mentioned, as, uh, as if it's this sort of mark of immaturity, that we need to move on to other thinkers. And I get that, of course. Uh, I do also wish that more everyday evangelicals would keep reading Lewis and more Lewis. Uh, so I wonder, one of the books you're best known for is the book The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which you wrote 30 years ago and updated a few years ago. And I wonder what you think about how this research on Lewis might connect, if at all, with the argument that you made in that book, which deals with anti-intellectualism among evangelicals, and whether you think that the continuing fascination with Lewis especially among non-academics, is an outlier to that argument or is implicated in that argument because there's this divide between academics and the church. What do you make of that? And how do you put those two things together? Yes, again, that's, that's a really uh, important question for, for the present. I, I think I probably want to say that, it, it, that fascination with Lewis is probably both very positive 
and perhaps dangerously negative. So the positive is someone who still read, who knew how to craft stories ostensibly for children, that made a strong presentation of the Christian faith, who, who, who could imagine what it was like for a senior demon to write to a junior demon and use that imagination to make a positive Christian statement. And, and, and in, in academic terms, who could uh, explain to literary critics that if you read Paradise Lost and don't put theology in the center, you're really not reading Paradise Lost. So Lewis is a really good example and worth continuing paying attention to as an encouragement for, for several kinds of positive Christian thinking, writing, communication. I think one, one of the things I came to appreciate most was, was Lewis's own account of how radio broadcasts came to be written, which eventually became so popular as mere Christianity. He recounts that he was asked during the early days of World War II to speak to troops, ordinary troops, RAF camps, and he reports that he bombed. Mm. He, he talked to them as if he mm. needed to impress his Oxford colleagues, but he finally learned that you, you just have to uh, set aside technical vocabulary. You have to search for down-home metaphors. Uh, you, you, have, you, you, you have to pass the test of knowing sophisticated information, but communicating it in a way that people can understand. So all, all of these are, are positive, but negative. If... Um, the Christian world thinks that we, unless we have another C.S. Lewis, uh, we're just not going to be effective. Or if C.S. Lewis becomes a, becomes a kind of deity, a, a junior deity who, who is considered to have no flaws, no flaws, no faults, then this really is damaging because that would indicate that, that intellectual maturity is still down the road. An ability to really appreciate Lewis's strengths, but also to realize that, that what he supplied in the 1940s and the 50s until he died in 1963 may not be exactly what uh, Christian proclamation should look like in the, in the 21st century, and, and uh, the, the respectful but uh, good criticism. Uh, uh, the, the incident where just a little bit after the time that I'm writing, Elizabeth Anscombe, a Catholic philosopher at, at Oxford, challenges uh, Lewis on one aspect of what he presented in one of his uh, broadcast talks, which eventually comes into mere Christianity, but was, was perfect. She had great admiration for Lewis, but she simply thought that he missed, some, missed the boat on a, an important philosophical point. And she, she corrected him, and Lewis, to his credit, when, when the pamphlets were republished, changed what he had written and, and, and uh, brought it in line with the criticism. So he benefited from criticism. And those who love Lewis today would also, I think, benefit from having a critical mindset as well as an appreciative mindset when they approached uh, Lewis's works. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very timely word for us because I think it's easy for us just to think, oh, if we could just find the next C.S. Lewis, right, then we would be okay. But, you know, as you point out, even during his time, he wasn't always uh, the C.S. Lewis that we imagine him to be. I wonder if we could end with a more general question, maybe which is connected to what you've been saying. Uh, you've been studying American religious history for your career, and as, as a historian, you help us to take the long view, you offer us perspective. And so I wonder as you look at the church in 2024, as you look at American religious life, um, especially maybe evangelical Christianity, what's one thing that discourages you, and then what's one thing that gives you hope? 
thinking about Lewis as a well-trained academic who could communicate with his academic peers and also in public makes me think that uh, scholarship, not necessarily by people who want to call themselves evangelicals, but some do, but scholarship uh, by individuals who are concerned to be Christian and not to be nervous about revealing their, their Christian faith, in some senses, I don't think has ever been better in, in American history. Hmm. So whether that's uh, philosophers following in the train of the reformed leaders, um, Alvin Plantinga, Nicholas Waldersdorf, whether it's historians following in the train of George Marsden, whether it's, it's, it's now legal scholars following in the train of John Witte uh, and, and other uh, overtly Christian legal scholars, whether it's in the uh, history and, and uh, effects of science with a, with a major public figure like Francis Collins publicly and acknowledging his debt to uh, mere Christianity, we have in what might be called the, uh, the academic level, or, or yes, the academic level of, of American society, a lot of active Christian writers, most many of them, including a lot of Catholics, who, who strengthen more specifically, evangelical concerns. Now, negatively, that level of Christian engagement has, I want to say, almost, not completely, but, but it's very difficult to find influence in the broader Christian world. And conversely, the concerns of the broader Christian world are, are oftentimes not taken seriously by those who have <clears throat> some kind of academic standing and, and who, who are embarrassed about the churches to which they, they belong. So I, I see the, in, in the modern world, this is an insight that George Marsden and Nathan Hatch and, and several others have uh, developed a, a kind of a bifurcated world in which uh, Christian learning of many different kinds is, 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 has much to offer but the communication, as you find in an ideal church where, where the different parts of the Christian body help each other out, communication within the Christian body is, is not, uh, not what it could be and, and, and should be. I mean, hmm. it's, it's become a cliche that the politicization, politicization of American evangelicalism is almost, in fact, eviscerated uh, the word evangelical as, as mm-hmm. a religious designation in public life. Right. And as someone who values the gospel-centered history of evangelicalism, uh, that, that to me is a, a, real, a real problem and a real crisis. So I, I think almost every historian who gets asked questions like this wants to quote Charles Dickens, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. <laughs> and I think that's, that's probably what I would say as well. Well, we appreciate you offering your perspective, and thank you so much for your scholarly work, which many of us have learned so much from. Our guest has been Dr. Mark Knoll. The book is C.S. Lewis in America, published by IVP Academic. Dr. Knoll, thanks so much for joining us today on the In All Things podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing this podcast with others. Thanks again for tuning in.